This is my Father's world. Oh, let me never forget that though the wrong seems all so strong, God is a ruler yet. This is my Father's world. Why should my heart be sad? The Lord is King. Let the heavens ring. God reigns. Let the earth be glad. The Lord is King. Let the heavens ring. God reigns. Let the earth be glad. Good morning, everyone. Welcome again to Trinity Heights Church. Great to see you here this morning. And today we are starting a new series, uh, which is basically Christ, titled after Christ's words, I Will Give You Rest, Reflections on the Sabbath. And um, seeing as the word Sabbath means to stop, to pause, to cease, I think we should begin this series by just pausing and stopping for a moment and enjoying and savoring a moment of silence. Let's just close our eyes and do that together. Okay, so I want to begin uh, this series with three snapshots of my life, and all of these snapshots take place on a Sunday. Um, first is, I, I remember Sunday mornings as a child. I remember there were these, this very lazy, relaxed atmosphere on a Sunday morning, and the Sunday times would land on our doorstep, it would be delivered, and classical music would be put on in the background, and no one would do much of anything, and certainly no one was going to do any work whatsoever. Uh, we would have a slow, late lunch, and then after this slow, late lunch, um, we might, if we weren't feeling too sluggish, go for a walk around the lake in the late afternoon, because everything was late on a, on a Sunday. And of course, you're thinking of a big American-sized lake, but this is Britain, so it's more like an American pond, I suppose, is what it would be the equivalent of. Um, but as a child, um, part of me appreciated that relaxed atmosphere. There was just something, there was something calming, and there was something soothing, and there was something almost reassuring to have a day like that roll around at the beginning or the end, whichever way you look at it, of each week. And as an adult, I have to say, I, I certainly cherish those memories more and more as the years go by. Of course, as a child, and don't get me wrong, as a kid, there were times when I thought Sundays were the most boring day of the week because there was nothing to do, you couldn't go anywhere, all the shops were shut, they still had Sunday trading laws, that changed eventually, and now you can shop for six hours, I think, on a, on a Sundays, they're, they're, they're allowed to, to open. Okay, so that's the first snapshot 
Okay, snapshot number one. There's three snapshots. The first one, the second one, the first one was my child, and the second one was when we had this sort of, it's a couple of snapshots really, of, of sort of a cultural transition. And so I remember our first Sunday when Julia and I moved to America, and we went to church, and then we were just taken aback that everyone after church went out to a restaurant and ate and a restaurant after, because if you went to church in England, you just wouldn't do that. That's just not the done thing. So, but of course, what seemed so shocking to us back then uh, seems perfectly natural and normal now, but, but that was certainly strange to us. Um, I, I also remember, this is not really one of the snapshots, but I also remember we had a, like a 7-Eleven right, right by us, and I remember wanting to go and get something and going, oh no, it's, it's 11.30, we've, we've missed it. Uh, and we, because we thought it meant 11, uh, 11 to 7 to 11, right? And, and then someone had, to, someone had to explain to us a few weeks later, said, no, 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 7-11 doesn't mean 7-11, it means, it means 24-7. It's like, whoa, we don't have anything 24-7 in England. At the time, we didn't. Now there's one or two things. We're trying to play catch up here. Um, okay, so the, then my, my father-in-law, he was trying to buy uh, a house in, in, in Texas, and he, he, was, he was, had to be inspected. He was moving over here. And, and so he, he gets the house inspected. The inspector calls a realtor to let him know that the inspection's been done, everything's good. And so the realtor calls my father-in-law on a Sunday to let him know that he's just, he's just received his call and everything's moving along nicely. But my father-in-law was just mortified. He was saying, I'm so sorry. I can't believe that your Sunday would be interrupted like that. I don't know what he was thinking. Why would he do that? And the realtor, of course, is shrugging her shoulders. I don't know what you're talking about. What's, what's the big deal here? But he was just completely like uncomfortable with that. Um, okay, so there's, there's that sort of cultural transition, Sunday cultural transition. Third snapshot, third and final snapshot of my life on a Sunday was at a friend's house recently uh, here in New York City uh, on, a, on a Sunday lunch in their home, not at a restaurant. And we were sitting around the lunch table eating, and they said that, you know, growing up, they had never really experienced having a day of rest, a day where you just did nothing. And there was never a day in the week where you're not expected to be productive in some way, shape, or form. This is just the way they grew up. And, and they said, but recently, they'd started in the last few months or last year, they started implementing this sort of, this idea of observing a day of rest, a day when they do nothing. And they said they want, they're enjoying it so much, they want to sort of make this part of the rhythm of their week. They want, they want it to become part of their, their lives because they said they want to give this, and listen to this, I love this, they wanted to give this as a gift to their children. They wanted to give this as a gift to them. The moment they said that, it, it dawned on me, perhaps for the first time, that those lazy, relaxed, sometimes really boring Sundays that we had as a child, those were a gift from my parents. And, and it's certainly something that I've, I've come to cherish more and more as the years go by. And, and it's, it's because I think it's given me, at times, when I've, when I've sort of, it's given me something to fall back into when, when things get crazy. And, and it's given me a rhythm in life, for the most part, when I've followed that, which I wouldn't otherwise have had. In this series, I want to explore uh, the pers different perspectives of, of the Sabbath, and I want, want to hold it up like a, a precious jewel and, and, and turn it in the light and look at it from different angles. Um, but before we turn our attention to the many layered meanings of the Sabbath, I want to be clear about two sorts of, um, I think, unhelpful but opposite reactions or responses to this idea of Sabbath rest 
Okay, and so uh, I want to address those two things first, and then we, we can move on to some, some other reflections. First of all, um, there is what we might call Sabbatarianism. Groups with the term Seventh Day in their name might be considered Sabbatarian groups. And, and for these groups, the observance of Sabbath, the day of rest, um, means different things, and it runs the gamut from this is what pleases God to this is uh, what you have to do if you don't, you know, this is your salvation at stake here, to if you observe the Sabbath on a Sunday instead of a Saturday, well, that's the mark of the beast. Uh, and I'm not making that up. It's interesting, isn't it, how these things evolve and, and ideas spread in, in, in that way. Um, of course, this issue is further complicated by the fact that some Christians believe that Sunday is the Christian Sabbath, and so therefore all of the rules prohibiting work on a Saturday are just translated wholesale onto Sunday, straightforwardly like that. Now, I understand that all of these uh, approaches uh, are really out of a desire to be faithful to God and faithful to the Scriptures. I also think it comes out of a misunderstanding of the Scriptures and a, and a misunderstanding of Jesus himself and his promise. Um, I don't think we're supposed to sort of repeat the previous act woodenly and rigidly. This is what they did in the Old Testament, so we're going to do this blow by blow as well. I don't, I don't think that that's how that works. So I'm not particularly interested in what is termed as Sabbatarianism, um, on the one hand. But on the other hand, and there's always an on the other hand, isn't there? And on the other hand, uh, there's all, to, I think to reflexively write this off as, well, this is just Old Testament stuff. Because we could do that. I've heard people say, it's just Old Testament stuff. We don't, we don't need to worry about Sabbath stuff because that's just, that's just legalism. That always leads to legalism. Um, I, I think that is also a mistake. Oh, it's okay. Jesus has inaugurated a new Sabbath rest. And this Sabbath rest spills over into every day of the week, not just confined to Sundays. And then it spills over into all of life, right? And, and, and while this may be true, I, I think sometimes when something, becomes, when something becomes everything, it's actually difficult to distinguish it from nothing, right? That, that's what happens. And I, and I think that if this really is a, a bigger concept than just a day off or, or a day of rest, and I think it is, I think Sabbath for Jesus becomes this bigger thing. And it, then, then I think um, that that Sabbath, we, we, we need to reflect on this, especially as people like us. And I, uh, and I think we, we value, what do we value? We value, we value uh, productivity, and we value success, and we value effectiveness, and we value efficiency. And we're a culture where there are, oh, there are 800 million vacation days you heard me right, I'm not, that's the number, 800 million vacation days that go unused every year. Give me some of those vacation days, I'll take them and, and use them and spend them. That's, that's amazing. So in that kind of cultural context, I think all the more reason why we actually do need to spend some time, maybe it's urgently for some of us to reflect, maybe for some of us it's desperately, desperately to reflect on what it means to have a Sabbath rest. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath, and he invites us to Sabbath rest. I want to invite you to close your eyes again as we hear his invitation. Just close your eyes with me. And just, this invitation may not mean that much right now, but just try to savor his words. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Keep your eyes closed, just take a moment, savor those words.
I want us to be able to hear Jesus' words, I will give you rest. And I want us to be able to hear that from our frantic, busy, hardworking, productive, super-efficient lives and, and not think to ourselves, what is Jesus saying? He's incomprehensible. I don't know what he's talking about. Because I think if Jesus' invitation to rest can become meaningful to people like us, we can understand what's on offer here. When he says, I will give you rest, then, then we might take him up as an invitation. And that can have some really interesting effects on our life, everyday lives. And that could be amazing. Okay. So, we can come back. <laughs> so, it's, it's important. We want to understand Jesus' invitation. I will give you rest. And in order to be able to understand that, we have to understand the, the rich theological tradition that he is drawing from. And of course, the, the rich well that he's drawing from is the, the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. And so, instinctively, we might reach, first of all, uh, for the, the uh, fourth commandment. Um, but it's interesting because the fourth commandment actually points away from itself to even earlier theological reflection. Um, this is what the fourth commandment says. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do, not do any work, neither you nor your son nor daughter nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. He made it holy. So the fourth commandment points us back to this earlier theological reflection. It points us back to Genesis chapter 1, right? The, the, the creation story. And so that's where I want to begin our Sabbath reflections. Um, as, as we reflect on the Sabbath, I want to start there. And I want to keep coming back to the creation story. We'll, we'll look at other passages, but I want to keep coming back to the creation story throughout the series because the creation story is not just this backdrop or, or nice tableau against which every, all the action happens. Rather, it, it is, it's got this forward movement of its own. The creation story is always bubbling just beneath the surface of every it's behind every tension that appears throughout the rest of Scripture. So the, the, the creation story sort of has, has a forward movement of its own that's driving the story of Scripture forward all the way through. Um, and, and so we'll begin there. Now, for, for those of us, um, for those of us who, who were following along with the series in Genesis online, do you remember we did that on? Do you remember we used to not be able to do this? We had to meet online. And, and as we were meeting, as, as time went on, the numbers just dropped off, because I don't blame you. I mean, I, I, I was sick of it myself. I really was. Um, so Genesis 1 to 11, we did a whole series just focused on those first 11 chapters, some of my favorite passages in, in Scripture. And so if you remember, we, we said that the ancient Hebrew readers would have read the creation story and there would be a sort of a, an association that would have come to them quite readily. And the association would have been between uh, this creation story in Genesis chapter 1 and the construction and the inauguration of a temple. Of a temple. Now that's not the sort, you know, and I don't read the creation story and go, oh yeah, this reminds me of a creation and a construction and, and or, or inauguration of a temple. You and I don't do that because that's not our world, but in the ancient Near East, that would have been quite a natural and reflexive sort of connection and analogy to, to make. And if you remember, we said that the temples in the ancient Near East would only become fully functioning temples 
after it had gone through an inauguration ceremony. It, it, it wasn't enough to just build and construct this temple, but you, you had to fill the temple. So it would go through this inauguration where they would bring in the, the furniture, the functionaries, the staff, the scepter, all the things that you needed for worship would be brought into the temple. So you had the empty structure, but then you had also had to fill that structure as well. That was part of the inauguration process. Now this obviously parallels the, the creation story, which begins by stating that the earth was formless and empty. Um, okay, so these are, these are not actually the... Okay, there you go. <laughs> Those are my instructions to the guy who's going to do the slides this week. So, <laughs> so um, formless and empty. It begins by saying it was formless and empty. Uh, but then what happens is God immediately, in the first three days, days one, two, and three, deals with the formlessness and gives it form and, and creates and through a series of separations. So he separates light from dark, separates sea from sky, separates land from sea, and now it's no longer formless. There's these separations. There's form, right? There's first three days. Then paralleling that, and you'll notice that day one parallels day four, day five parallels day two, right? Or they would if they were kind of aligned, right? So they, what, you'd, what you'd see is that this empty temple structure of creation is now going to be filled, it's going to be furnished. And so he fills the sky with birds and, and the sea with sea creatures and, and the land with animals and, and, and human beings as well. Um, so now it is no longer formless or empty, right? This temple is constructed, it has been filled, but it is still not, in the ancient Near East, the temple was still not a fully functioning temple until you reach the climax of the temple inauguration, which would take place on the seventh day. And in this temple inauguration, what would happen is the deity would enter. It would enter the, the deity would enter the prepared residence and would rest there and assume their rule of the cosmos from their temple throne. Genesis 1 is drawing a parallel between the, the construction and inauguration of a temple and God's creation. It says, on the seventh day, God rested. This is often seen as, well, it's not really part of the creation story. Right? It's, just, it's not really part of, nothing, no, nothing big happens. Right? There's no, there's no, uh, it's not really part of creation. It's sort of more of a postscript, a P.S., Nothing much happened on the seventh day. But in actual fact, God resting on the seventh day is the supreme creative moment. This, this is the moment where creation becomes a fully fledged, functioning temple for the living God. So what can we learn from this? From, from the beginning, from the beginning, the creation story and, and Sabbath is this picture of the intimacy of God with his creation. God abiding with his creation, God close to his creation, God present to his creation, God present to us. And so the first sort of value or observation I want to make about the Sabbath this, this week is simply this, that Sabbath rest elevates relationships. The invitation to Sabbath rest elevates relationships. It's, it's the opposite of legalism. Sometimes people are, oh, we're going to talk about Sabbath, we're going to get all legalistic about it. Well, no, no, this is the opposite of legalism. Legalism takes the rules surrounding certain things and objects and other things, just takes the rules and it elevates the rules above relationships and above everything else. Right? And this is what the Pharisees did with the Sabbath. They took the Sabbath and they used it as a, wielded it as a weapon. 
is this rule, you didn't follow this rule the right way, you don't following observing the Sabbath the way we observe the Sabbath, so you can't be part of our group. You're part of the club, you're not part of our family, we can't be together, we, we, we're not with us, right? But, but this Sabbath is actually, they, they've, lo- they've lost the plot, because the whole point of Sabbath is it, it, it elevates relationships. It nurtures intimacy. It values closeness. Sabbath invites us to become conscious of God's presence and in turn to make ourselves present to God and to become more greatly present to each other. So perhaps this is the first thing we should hear when Jesus says, I will give you rest. This is, this is what's on offer. So I want to finish this week just reflecting briefly on this invitation to presence, this invitation to intimacy, that's what it's about. It's interesting, isn't it? If I say, look, uh, um, do you want to do nothing? It doesn't sound that inviting or interesting. But, but if, if this is an invitation to closeness and presence in our relationships, I don't know, that sounds, sounds inviting to me. Some of you may have come across Sherry Turkle. Sherry Turkle is a professor at MIT, and she's been dubbed the conscience of the tech industry. I don't know how much the tech industry is listening to their conscience, uh, but I think we should. Uh, of course, I think a lot of what she has to say coincides very nicely with so much of, of what we've been talking about this, this morning. And she points out two significant ways that technology, uh, mostly through our phones, you know, whatever the social media and email and everything, and texting, whatever the interruptions are, they come through our phones, uh, how technology um, works against this kind of presence and, and intimacy, which is, is this important dimension of, of Sabbath. Um, so here, here's uh, the first one. They, they offer us the illusion of companionship without the demands of intimacy or challenges to empathy. So perhaps this is a more, this is a, uh, a more usual observation. We, we sort of know, yeah, it's offering us this companionship, but we know we have no claim on each other. And with one swipe, I can delete you from my phone and, and, and whatever. There's no claim on each other. There's no demand for intimacy or challenge to empathy. So we, we get that. But then the, the other thing she says is that it also means that we never have to be bored. And this is true, because when I'm waiting for Julia, or I'm waiting for a meeting, uh, or I'm waiting for the elevator, or I'm waiting for the C train, right? I never have to be bored because I, I, I'm watching a video, I'm, I'm reading an article, I'm buying something, but I, thankfully, thankfully, I never have to be bored. And that's a great thing, isn't it? Except that what she says is that boredom, Turkle says that boredom is something that is so important to our psychology and development. She says the single achievement of childhood is the capacity to be bored, and to transform that boredom into solitude and creativity and looking within the self. And because of this, she says that boredom is a prerequisite for intimacy. Now, I I normally wouldn't have thought, what's important for intimacy? You know, closeness, presence. Oh, boredom. I wouldn't have put that at the top of my list. But she puts it on the list. And... She says that when we're bored and we go inside ourselves, we become familiar with our own fears and our own anxieties and our own joys and sorrows. And all of that internal self-awareness happens when we're bored. And here's the thing. The more we know ourselves, the more we are able to give ourselves 
more we know ourselves, the more we are able to give ourselves to each other, to have more intimate transparency with a spouse, with a friend, with, with your children, with these, these most intimate of human relationships. Her concern is that because this generation is growing up without boredom, because at the moment we, you know, we feel the pang for boredom, we reach for our devices, and I just do it inst- it's just reflexively, I do it without thinking, right? Um, we're losing the basic capacity for intimacy and relationships. And, and I, think the, the exact, I think the exact same dynamic is true, uh, spiritually speaking, if you want to make that kind of category division. The, the prerequisite to spiritual intimacy with God is boredom. You have to have boredom. You have to have quiet and solitude and self-reflection and self-awareness. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Or perhaps the invitation is, come to me and I will make you bored. Uh, that's, perhaps that's what we hear. That doesn't sound very inviting, but past the boredom. Past the boredom is presence and intimacy. Self-awareness that, that leads to self-giving. Come to me and I will make you present to one another. That's an interesting invitation. Come to me and I will make you someone capable of closeness and intimacy. Come to me and I will make you self-giving. A person who can give yourself to others. So this week I want to think about how we can respond to this invitation of, of, of Jesus uh, specifically with regards to our technology. We'll, we'll think about it in, in the Sabbath rest in, in many other ways as we go through this series, but we'll start there. It's got to look like something. The fourth commandment sends us back to the creation story, and we discover the creation story. It tells us that the supreme creative act is the moment God becomes present to his creation in a new way, thereby elevating relationships. So I'm going to suggest four ways that we might practice this sort of Sabbath thinking around our technology. And I'm not suggesting that these are the only ways or that these are the correct ways. You may have some other ways of dealing with this. But I want to give some, you know, four practical ways that we might begin to do this. You can just pick one if you haven't done any of them before. Um, and I'm sure you will have other better ways of doing this. And if you do, please tell me because I, I want to know. <laughs> I, I want to know as well. Um, so first of all, Fight the urge to check the phone first thing in the morning. I have to fight the urge to check the phone first thing in the morning, so I'm suggesting just do that. Fight Because I, in a way, I'm saying to the phone, I'm personifying my phone now. This is, this is how bad things have got. But I'm, 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 like, I'm saying to the phone, you will not have the first moments of my day. You won't have it. This technology, and, and so I'll, I'll get a drink, and, and I'll have a conversation, or, or, or I'll reflect on something. I'll do something else before I reach for the phone. You will not have the first moments of my day. And what that does is it sets me up for a mindset and it sort of sets the trajectory of my discipline for that day. It says, okay, this is, this, I begin how you mean to, to carry on. I begin how I mean to carry on, right? So resist uh, checking the phone as the first thing you do. The second thing is that when I'm meeting with people, I'll put my phone into airplane or do not disturb mode. Um, it's hard, isn't it? I'm sitting in Amritas and there's all sorts of things going on. So someone was starting a fight the other day in there. Uh, so there's all sorts of distractions going on, right? And so uh, it's hard enough to be present for each other. And so just my phone going off every moment, I, I just don't want that. So I, I'll, I'll, I'll turn it off or put it in airplane mode or, or whatever, um, just so, so that there that isn't that interruption. 
Um, and I know many of you do this, do the same thing as well. The, the third one is I will not bring the phone into the bedroom. Um, bedroom, a place of rest and a place of intimacy. And so I'm not going to have the phone in the bedroom. So I just leave it out uh, on the, the kitchen unit. Um, this is, this is, look, I'm not saying this is the correct way or the only way. You'll have some other better ways of handling this. This is something that I do, okay? So I leave it, we leave it out on the kitchen counter, plugged in, charging, and, uh, and, and then we'll, we'll see it in the morning, but not first thing, right? So don't bring it into the bedroom. And then the fourth thing I do, and this one is really radical, is turn off the phone for 24 hours once a week. Wow. Can we, could, we, could we do something like that? Is that possible? Could we turn it off? I'll tell you what, uh, I don't always do this, but I try to. And, and on that day when I am supposed to not be doing it, and I do it, nine times out of ten, I deeply regret having checked my phone. Because there's something on there that starts to occupy some real estate in my head, right? It starts to take up this, this it has, and so suddenly, because I'm thinking about this other thing, it, it's not a big deal, I mean, it's not, no one's, I'm not a doctor, so no one's, no one's, you know, if you, if it's an emergency, you call the, the hospital, right? So there's nothing I can do to, there's nothing emergency of that kind, right? So it's not a big deal, it's usually whatever it is can wait till the next day, right? It, it, it can be handled just as well tomorrow as it can be today, but because I've looked at it, it's just, it's taking up that real estate in my head, and it's just, I'm occupied with it. And suddenly, my wife, Julia, watches me, and she's like, oh, you, there you go. This is, this, is why I tell you, this is why we shouldn't be doing this, because I become detached, and I'm no longer present to her, and I'm no longer present to my friends that day, whoever we're with, right? I become less present, and, and, and that's how that operates in, in my life. And so it's, it's magic just to leave it and to know whatever it is, because I'm not the hospital, it'll be fine, and I'll pick it up tomorrow, and we'll, we'll all be okay. You know where I live, you can come find me there. So these are just four ways, and as I say, please, please, I, I'm serious, I invite you to just send me emails and texts and, and whatever you have, um, whatever other ideas you have, come, come and tell me. Uh, I'd love to know what other ideas you have for the ways that we can think about the way Sabbath elevates a relationship and, and, and manage our technology around that way. Let's just think about how these simple steps might create space and boredom so that we can be present to each other the way that God is present to us.